Kicks Brooks of Brooks and Dunn once said about Nashville, there's really no place like it left. Songwriters are still waking up every day, banging on guitars and pianos, staring at a blank piece of paper and coming up with what they think will be the next big hit. It's very unique. I can't think of another place in the world that's quite like it. And Kicks is exactly right. Nashville songwriting community is one of the most unique creative communities in the world, where hundreds of writers work alone or together every day, searching for the right combination of lyrics, melody, and magic to come up with, as Kicks says, that next big hit. And often, these writers go unheralded, unnoticed. And that's what I hope to change a little with this new podcast. What's up? My name is Tom Maley, and this is Write You a Song. And once a month, we're going to introduce you to Nashville's top songwriters. You'll get to know them, but you'll also get the stories behind the songs. And we'll also dive into the creative process and learn the incredible amount of hard work and dedication to craft that goes along with it. And our inaugural guest will speak to all of that and more. Along with his brother, Brad, Brett Warren is one half of the songwriting team, the Warren Brothers. And together, they've written a few recognizable songs over the past 13 or so years. But I do. She's going to feel and fun. Yeah, I'm the lucky one, but I have to admit, it felt good on my lips. When the lights come on, everybody's screaming, lighters in the sky, and everybody's singing. Yeah, those are some monster hits right there. And so today on this first ever podcast of Write You a Song, Songwriter Brett Warren is going to talk about the craft, a craft he said he knew nothing about when he first got to town with his brother Brad. They were hoping to make it as the guys out front singing the hits, not behind the scenes, writing them. When I didn't know that, you know, when I when I heard Tim McGraw sing Don't Take the Girl when I was in Florida, I didn't know he didn't write it. I didn't know, you know, Bon Jovi had people helping him write songs or that, you know, at Axl Rose and Slash didn't write up that first Guns N' Roses record, but the guitar player Izzy Stradlin did. It's fascinating when you start getting behind it. Well, let's let's start at the beginning. You guys started off as, do I have this right, a Christian rock duo? We were in a Christian band when we were in high school, in junior high. We went to a small Christian school, so we weren't allowed to listen to regular, what they called secular rock and roll. So we had a Christian rock band, and we did that for a few years during high school. And then when we got out of high school, we started to put together a couple rock bands that were kind of, you know, it wasn't faith-based necessarily, but it was like, you know, Definitely faith-driven songs, and then it kind of became, we sort of playing beaches down there. This was in 91, 92, 93, into 94, playing beach bars and sort of, you know, making a living doing that. So we would play Crosby, Stills, and Nash, uh, you know, the Eagles, and Mellencamp, and Tom Petty, and the Heartbreakers, and the Allman Brothers, and Dan Morrison. And we never played Jimmy Buffett, which was just sort of like a claim to fame, just because everybody down there did. If everybody in town was going left. We would always go right. And then it sort of just grew into this organic acoustic rock. And then a guy in 1994 said, man, you guys should um, go to Nashville sometime and just try it out. So we drove to Nashville the summer of 94. And uh, we met a guy named Buzz Kaysen. And Buzz had found, ironically had discovered Jimmy Buffett. He was the guy that discovered Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> Okay. And so he brought us into his studio. We sat, we played two songs, and there were these two old guys there with him. And they were in their 60s, maybe even 70s, sitting there. We played a couple songs, and Buzz looked over to these guys, and he said, what do you think, should we sing them? And one of the old guys goes, well, I like them. They can play their guitars, and they can harmonize. And 
we didn't find out till later it was Gordon Stroker, who was one of the Jordan heirs. Oh, wow. That had sang with Elvis, and he was sitting there. We didn't know it till later, until years later. Well, you talk about you and Brad, when everybody else would go right, you would go left. Did that kind of help you as you transitioned into songwriting? How much of that, you know, just your personalities, how, how much does that play into the songwriting process and collaborating with other no, writers? It, it plays in a lot. I mean, if you if you have a bad personality, you better be really good. You know what I mean? And as my dad told me, my brother was, uh, my dad passed away in 01, but he told us this, boys, don't ever quit being funny. You don't sing good enough. And we used to, used to laugh so hard when he would say that. He'd start dying laughing. And you know what? There's a little bit of truth to it. Mm-hmm. People like being in a room with somebody that's bringing in some energy. And we've always tried to, whoever we're in the room with, help them get where they want to go. And to bring some energy in the room and to make everybody laugh and to have a good time. And uh, it's it definitely helps. It definitely, it definitely uh, gets you rebooked on on projects and you, you can't sink your way onto the charts. You just got to do the work. There's a lot more of just like people skills and discipline and character and work ethic that goes into being a hit songwriter than just having a great idea. Which, by the way, you have to have a great idea. There's a lot more just things that you can control that are important to control if you're a new songwriter coming off. It's like people always ask, what should I do? Man, live beneath your means, write all the time, have a great attitude. Other than that, I don't know what to tell you, because you could write a song like Sam Hunt, or you could write like Tom Douglas, or you could write like Alan Jackson. People like all of it. I don't know what to tell you as far as that. That's going to be up to you. What I can tell you is have a good attitude, work hard, you know, be fun to be in the room with, be responsible. If you're supposed to be there at 10, be there at 10, you know, that kind of stuff. When you and Brad first got to Nashville and, and you had your duo going, and I think what, you had three three albums together, correct? Three or four? There was a um, Beautiful Day in the Cold Crew World, which is a very <laughs> simple, easy title to remember. That's a joke. Uh, and then there's uh, King of Nothing. And then we had Well-Deserved Obscurity. And then we had uh, Barely Famous Hits. So there's actually four records out there. But, right. So there's a lot of great songs on those records, but... We really just sort of started coming into our own, and, and uh, we met Tim McGraw, and he liked us, and he liked our songwriting. And once again, uh, how we met Tim was we were opening for Faith in 1999, and he walked to Jeter and said, hey, do you guys play football? And we're like, I mean, how, what do you mean? Like, oh, we're going to play uh, flag football on the street. Yeah, we can do that. So Brad and I were kind of high school athletes a little bit. We weren't like D1 material, but we played basketball and football. We, we played basketball soccer. with you guys, and Brad especially has got some hops. Yeah, you know, we were, we were pretty good. We were, you know, everybody was, we went to a small sort of Christian private school, but in that kind of setting, you had to play every sport, so we got to be pretty good. But Tim McGraw liked us because we could play basketball. When he learned we could play basketball, the three <laughs> of us started going to the YMCA on the days off playing basketball. And he, I remember in 1999, he said, hey, next year, if I take you guys on a road with me, will you play basketball every day? We're like, yeah, I'm going on, I'm going on the road with this new band called the Dixie Chicks. I want you guys to open, but we'll play basketball every day. I'll just bring you out on the tour. And we're like, do we, can we answer now? And he's like, sure. <laughs> like, yes, we will go, of course. <laughs> and, uh, and that's how we sort of met him. Everybody's like, how'd you meet Tim? He loves your songs. You know, he does love our songwriting. And we have become close friends. We kind of know what he likes and, and it just has sort of creatively worked, but how he initially liked us is because we could pick and roll. I mean, really and truly. 
the reason the Thunderdome knows we're on this planet is because we can play basketball. And that's <laughs> that's sort of, it's like you just can't plan it in the music business. You never know what's going to happen. So you guys, my my point is, I guess you didn't go to Nashville with the intent of becoming a couple of the most well respected, most successful songwriters of the last. 30 years in that town. That really wasn't necessarily on your no, radar, we was did, it? we did not. We came to be artists. We were going to be, you know, John Mellencamp. We were going to be the Heartbreakers. We were cool. I didn't even know full-time songwriters existed. Hmm. I thought maybe the producer wrote with somebody or... I really, We really didn't even know that existed. And then I went to the Bluebird one night with my girlfriend, who was now my wife. And we saw Don Schlitz play The Gambler. I just remember sitting there going, oh, my gosh, that guy's awesome. That song's ridiculous. And watching him perform it and tell the story about it was, was the most fascinating thing I'd ever seen. I was just blown away. And, uh, yeah, so we, we kind of – what we do – I tell my kids all the time. I have a son in college, and he's like, Dad, I'm kind of freaking out. I'm 18. I don't know what I want to do the rest of my life. I'm like, I didn't know what I do for a living existed until I was 30. Wow. So you're, you're fine. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, we – we really didn't set out to be songwriters like that, but you know, we were as artists. We were diverse. We had songs that were very country, storytelling, kind of minory, kind of rock. Some songs that were poppy. It was like we were all over the map, which can hurt you as an artist. But then, as a writer, our first hit ever was with uh, Leonard Skinner, and the second one was with Faith Hill. And then we had a song with Nickelback, and then Tim McGraw, and then Toby Keith. And then we wrote songs with Neo, and then we wrote songs with Steven Tyler from Aerosmith. You know, we had hits with Keith Urban. So it's been all over the map, and it's been so... It's, it's really a godsend, because it is what, what God packed our backs for, was to be diverse and to be musically all over the map and just sort of try to help people get where they want to go. It's sort of been our calling. That's, that versatility is, I, I was reading an interview uh, with you guys before I came in here, and you talk about that and how you might sit down with Chris Young, and he's got an idea for, in fact, tell the story about sitting down with Chris Young. Uh, was he the one that had the idea for Sober Saturday Night, or? We've known Chris for a while, and he had some hits, and then he started having more hits, and his mom's our accountant, and we're like, hey, we want to write with Chris. We kept joking about it, and so finally... He called us up one day and said, hey, let's, let's put one on the books. We're like, yeah, let's do it. Get in the room. And me and Rad had done our prep work. And we had this idea, and it was up-tempo, and it was kind of funky and rock and cool and kind of an arena song. And it sounded better on paper, as they say, than it did in the room. So we hit the room. We started writing it. You can kind of tell about an hour in that no one's feeling it, especially Chris, which is important. The guy that's the, the star, he's got to like the song. And so we're... We're about an hour and a half in at this point, and Chris says, you know what, man, let's just let's put down on tape what we've got now. Listen to it. Maybe we'll just reschedule another date, which was a nice way of saying, I really don't like this song. And so he's, we're sort of packing up, and he's a super cool guy. We're really good friends with him and, you know, have known him for a while. We're best friends, but, you know, he's it's totally comfortable. Mm-hmm. And... He's walking out of the room, and I just sat down at the piano and started just playing this really slow version of Chopsticks, I think. And Chris was like, man, this sounds cool. What's that? And I'm like, I don't know. And Brad goes, look at the title, uh, Silver Saturday Night. I don't know what it means. And and I was like, what if the guy's like, on Sunday, he's just like, feels like crap because Saturday is great. He's moved on to somebody else. And he's just feeling like crap on Sunday morning because he had a sober Saturday night. 
purpose is gone. Purpose is like, oh, this is genius. So he starts spinning out the verses. So the kid worked for an hour or two on this song that nobody liked. And then on the way out the door with his backpack hanging over his shoulder, we wrote Sober Saturday Night in literally about a half hour. Wow. And it came out so smooth. And we did a work tape of it right there. And he sang, I have his version of me playing the piano and him singing the work tape. And it is so good. But I'm still not. that he went and played it for his publisher and said, listen to this song here. And everybody loved it. Thank God I sat down at the piano for a second and just started plunking away. How often does it happen that a song comes that easily? The good ones, you don't have to struggle with too much. And we took quite a few hits where the song we wrote second that day was the hit. Hmm. So we tried to write something all day long, it didn't work, and then we wrote a second song, and boom, that was the hit. That's happened quite a few times. Have you analyzed that? Why do you think that is? I think the pressure is on us. I don't think you're, you're not trying as much. I mean, it's like anything else. When we're in a room with another big songwriter, we can tell immediately if the mixture creatively is going to work. Because sometimes you're in a room with a, with a guy like Tom Douglas, mm-hmm. and he's so good and phenomenal, but we're totally comfortable with him. We're totally vulnerable, and it feels totally comfortable. But then there'll be times we're in a room with another really big songwriter, and it kind of feels like immediately like you're trying to impress them, or do you want them to think you're as good as you think they think you are? You start thinking all these crazy thoughts that creative people think, and once we go there, it's not any good. For us, just be yourself, and what comes out of us, you know, naturally the first time, usually best, to be quite honest. Who is your favorite person to, to write with or songwriter? Do you, do you guys have... Uh, a songwriter, a songwriting team that you really love to just hang out with? You know, there's, there's so many. I, we've gotten to the point now we hardly don't write with anybody if we don't love hanging out and writing with them. I mean, there are people that are – I love David Lee Murphy. I just love him as a guy. I just think he's so cool. And he's always been cool. He'll always be cool. I love Tom Douglas. There's some new track guys that are great to write with. This guy named Chris Stevens. It's just his tracks are so good. He's funny and he's fun. Uh, you know, there's just so much talent. Bobby Pinson is crazy, and he's probably one of the naturally one of the best songwriters Nashville's ever seen. I like writing old school guys. Like, you know, we've written with Whisper and Bill Anderson. Uh, we've written with Don Schlitz. It's I, I really enjoy it with pretty much everybody. What is I really it, do? What's it like writing with uh, uh, somebody like Bill Anderson, who is from a completely different era? Was there? It, it was interesting. You know, it's interesting in the sense that you realize that you're not that different. He's still tapped in. Of course, I mean, I think the guy's, I don't even know how old he is. I think he's in his 80s now. Mm-hmm. And he's still writing. And he just loves the process. And uh, it's it's different. Everybody's different. What would you say that the ratio of songs written versus songs cut versus songs that become hits is? Do you know what I mean? I'll give you our exact numbers. For us, I think we've written 2,500 songs. And I think we've had over 250 cuts. Now, we've only been songwriters full-time for 13 years. Mm-hmm. 
So the 250 cuts, and um, I think we've had like 30 top 40 hits, and I think we've had 15 big hits. And we've been really, really, really blessed. And eight number ones. Now there's songs like The Lucky One and Anyway and Red Solo Cup. And if you're reading this, those songs were not number one songs, but they were big hits. They were twos, threes, fours, fives. So it's the numbers are staggering to think we've been writing for, you know, 15, 13 to 15 years as writers. Five more years without we were artists. And we've only had 15 big hits. That's wow. a lot of songs. And we've worked really, really hard. And we've been really blessed. So I met a kid the other day. I said, hey, I want to be a songwriter. I said, you do? He's like, yeah. And I go, do you write songs? And he goes, yeah. And I go, congratulations. You're a songwriter. funny writing songs. And I go, oh, okay. So you're willing to work, write two songs a day, five days a week for the next three years and not get any cuts and still do it. Because that's what, that's what it's going to take to get your craft good enough where you start getting hit to 300 success. Mm. Well, I don't know if I can do all that. And I'm like, okay. And you don't want to be a songwriter. So it's a, it's, it's definitely a discipline and, and it's, it's a crazy business where you can, music business, as you know, you can do everything quote unquote right and it doesn't work. And then when we wrote Red Solo Cup, it was literally a joke. Me and Brad and Brent Beavers and Jim Beavers were two other brothers. Uh, we're trying to make each other laugh. And we had this fake college band together. We were all in our forties and we were trying to act like if we were a college band, what song would we write? And how would we re- how would we record it? And that's sort of how that happened. That song was a joke, and we weren't even going to do a demo of it. But didn't Toby Keith actually say that's the dumbest song I've ever heard? Let me hear yeah, it again. Yeah, he that's the dumbest song I've ever heard. Play it again. And I play it again. He goes, "Yep, that's the dumbest song I ever heard." I have to tell you. Now, Red Solo Cup is the best receptacle for barbecues, tailgates, fairs, and festivals. And you, sir, do not have a pair of testicles if you prefer drinking from glass. <laughs> hey, Red Solo Cup. And I mean, it's been downloaded millions of times. We'll play these corporate events and we'll play Highway Don't Care. And then we'll play Life Come On or Silver Saturday Night. Great songs that we think are pretty dang good songs. And then people really enjoy them. And then we kick it around solo cup and everything comes out. People stand on their chairs. They start filming you. They want to take a picture with you. They want you to sign their cup. It's hilarious. It's so bizarre. (laughs) I'm telling you right now. If I die before you, Red Solo Cup will be on my gravestone. You can have a good laugh. <laughs> now, on the flip side of that, talk about one of your most poignant songs, uh, and that was the one that you wrote for, for Tim called If You're Reading This, and, and just kind of how that song came to be, and, and it, didn't Carol King have something to say? One of the all-time great, great songwriters. Yeah, she heard it, right? She did. Funny. Yes, she did. Uh, Tim was done with his record, and it was in the stores. And uh, we had nine eleven had happened, and we would, we had already invaded Iraq, and it was just you know war and kids going off to war was weighing kind of heavy on our country's mind and shoulders at this particular time in history. And Tim called me and said, "Hey, there's an article in Time Magazine, and it's called If You're Reading This, and all it is is all these letters that soldiers have written home to their families in case they don't make it back from the mission." He said. I think it'd be an awesome idea if we wrote a song called If You're Reading This, and the entire song is a letter. And and we just write it as a kid would write it home. And I was like, okay. 
started playing with some ideas at my office on acoustic guitar. And boom, it was like the first verse just started rolling out. I called my brother. I was like, you got to get over here right now. I think I'm on to something. He drove over. We started working on it. We had a bunch of block ideas. And we called Tim and we said, hey, we're on to, I think this song, I know you're done with your record. We just, we want to write this with you and finish this with you uh, before some of these ideas slip our mind. He's like, come over right now. We drove to his house. We're sitting in his living room. And by the time we had gotten done, we probably, in there about an hour. We were literally, very, very few times you'll see this, we were hugging each other. We were like, yes, we were satisfying and hugging each other because we knew we had just written something that we loved, the three of us. Glory is my mama sitting there Looks like I only got a one-way ticket away And we just, we were excited because the art was good and because we knew the lyrics were poignant and that there wasn't an ounce of sand on it. We had turned it up. We had made it exactly what it was supposed to be. I'm laying down my gun. I'm hanging up my boots. I'm up here with God and we're both watching over you. And so he's like, man, this is awesome. And we just sort of left it at that. We put a little work to get down on our iPhones. And we left, and we knew he'd written a good song. We were we were pumped about it. But his record was done, and he had already was it was all in the stores and everything. So three days later, he played an event in Washington D.C. And he just, I guess, after nine after we wrote it, he sat there and learned it and played it, and he taught it to a couple guys in his band. And when they were on the road for the next few days, they would play it every day in the dressing rooms, and they had worked it up basically. And he played it at this event, and Carol King was there, and she walked up to him and she said. Did you write that song? He said, yeah, I wrote that with my friends, the Warren Brothers. And she said, that's one of the best songs I've ever heard. I love that song. And I think it just meant the world. It just sort of it kind of felt that it was the song was special, but it kind of reaffirmed it. And about a week later, unbeknownst to anybody, not even being on his record, he performed it on the ACMs. And that is the only recording of that song, his, his live performance. Isn't that crazy? I'm laying down my gun. Hanging up my boots Till dad I don't regret That I followed in his shoes So lay me down When you talked about uh you were on to something, and you called your, your brother up. That kind of reminded me of an interview I heard one time with, uh, with with John Mellencamp where he was talking about the songwriting process, and he talked about how sometimes he, – he doesn't know where the lyrics or anything are coming from, and he just feels like he's translating as fast as he can from this language that even he doesn't understand, has no idea of its origin. Is it that way for you when, when you get into a zone like that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's different. I mean, sometimes you just – right off the top of your head and speak of consciousness and then you try to make sense of it later or sometimes it could be just free form and you're expressing yourself in a kind of artsy and you're not really sure what it means but song, country songwriting is a little bit more crafted here's the idea here's the title let's point towards it but for us we've always had success and people have cut songs of ours that were just a little different I mean, Highway Don't Care, it was like a girl was on the radio singing back, and it was a female vocalist, and, you know, but it's, it's, it's it seems normal now, but when they heard the demo, they're like, wait, wait, what's going on? I can't live without you, I can't live without you, 
We've always just sort of just let it fly out there and see what happens. One of my favorite songs ever was not a hit, but Tim Cut. It's called Between the River and Me. Next day I followed him down to the riverbank. I knew one of us wouldn't walk away. And me and Brad and Brett Beavers wrote it. And it's just the most bizarre story song. But I don't even know how it came about. It was Brett Beavers' idea. But when we got done and did the demo, we were like, this is wild. It's so much fun. <laughs> there are no rules. A friend of mine has a sign up in his office that said, it says, it's not whether our ideas are too crazy, it's whether they are crazy enough. So we've always just sort of taken that into the songwriting room. And, you know, there will always, there are guys that are a lot better than us. There are guys that have more number ones than us. But we've been blessed and we sort of found our lane of just, being who we are and, and, and trying to make stuff that's great, try to help artists get where they need to go, if we can. I don't want to keep you too much longer, and I appreciate all the time that you've given us so far, but I do want to ask you, uh, you, you talked earlier about meeting somebody that they want to be a songwriter, and are you willing to put it in, in this much time? What do you now, as a seasoned veteran of Nashville songwriting, um, do you try to give back to, to newer songwriters or to work with them and help them hone their craft and the ones that are truly dedicated you try and help them see the way forward? Oh, yeah, totally. I, I love writing with new writers. Um, new artists that are, that are like artist writers, um, finding new writers that you, that you believe in, and uh, or, you, know, you hear some demos or somebody's song they've written, you're like, that's great. Who, who wrote that? Oh, this is new kid. Hey, put us in the room with him. I love that. It's just so much fun for me. Well, you'd be a great teacher too. You've got such a great sense of humor, and you just you you, you explain things so well. Hey, that's probably why you're a good songwriter. <laughs> well, I'm not a very good communicator, if you ask my wife. That's every husband. That's every husband. <laughs> what do your kids think about dad's career? No matter what your dad does for a living, you don't think it's cool. It's, oh, dad, you like country music. You guys write about gravy and chicken and tailgates. That's all I think it is. And. And uh, they've always kind of made fun of it. Two of my girls trying to get my boys to go out on stage and he let them take the mic and sing. They're like, oh, yeah. And they'd stand on the side of the stage and act like they were having a bad time, you know. And, <laughs> and now my son's at college and all these girls like country music. And he's like, hey, Dad. Uh, so, how, you know Thomas Rhett, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, I was just wondering if, like, uh, he can give me four tickets. No. <laughs> no, country music. It's nerdy. It just makes me happy. You'd mentioned Thomas Rhett. Who are, I don't know, two or three or four newer artists that, that uh, you think have the most promise for kind of the, the, the future of country music? Yeah, I love, I mean, I guess I'm not, I'm not picking a wild card with Thomas Rhett. He's huge, but I mean, he's a great songwriter. His dad's a great songwriter, but we wrote with Thomas for his first record, um, and he was great back then. He'd got, gotten cuts before he was even an artist. Thomas is a great father. I love what he does. I love him as a person. He's a great kid. Uh, and I think, I think what he's doing is great. I love Sam Hunt. I've always loved Miranda Lambert and what she does because she pushes herself. As far as new people, and I, I'll tell you who I really like, and uh, I, I saw him play live, and I've been a friend of him for 20 years, but I saw him live about a month ago. And he is just a star, and he's super entertaining, and he's singing his tail off these days. Is Chris Jansen. He's just gotten great. He planted a, an event of ours a couple of months ago. Uh, well, it was in the spring, 
and I had I only knew him from his hits, and I'd heard he was pretty good live, but I felt like I was like almost watching kind of a, a young Bruce Springsteen up there in the way that he just absolutely put everything he had into every song yeah. and connected with the audience. He became like the character of every song that he was singing. Just I, I, one of the best performances I've I've seen. I called him the country Mick Jagger like 15 years ago when he was just uh, even skinnier, younger kid. And I said, man, like a country Mick Jagger. I've always thought that about him. But man, he's really coming. His voice was great. He sat down and played the piano with his harmonica as a Christmas thing. I really like there's a new guy going to come out called Cody Johnson. He's a Texas guy, really traditional country. Love him. Um, I love Mitchell Tenpenny. Uh, there's just a bunch of there's a bunch of new artists that I think are great coming out. So the future of country music is good. I think so. I think it's going to be getting really good. They're getting played on the same stations. It's just more diverse. I love it. I think it's really gotten great. Yeah, I've always thought it, it, it's funny that for people who uh, are on the outside looking in at country, uh, they just stereotype it. As you said earlier, it's fried chicken and drinking beer and stuff. And there is that element. But there is so much more diversity, I think, in country music than in any other genre. Because where else can you have a John Party right next to a Sam Hunt, right next to Miranda Lambert? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, here's what I like about it as a songwriter. I think everybody's being who they are. John Party, that's who he is. He's mm-hmm. not trying to be like Alan Jackson or if everybody was more one way, he's not leaning his style. Luke Combs, he's just being himself. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've never even met Luke Combs. And he wrote with a bunch of people I've never even heard of. But it's fresh and it's young and it's cool. And he's, I, I think the guy's great. I think he's just being who he is. And I think each artist being more authentic is just going to make our uh, industry grow. For Brett Warren, I can't thank you enough again for taking time today to uh, to debut. Help me premiere this podcast about uh, songwriters and writing songs. And I just think it's a, a fascinating process, and you guys don't get your due. Man, I really appreciate it. I love you doing this. I think it's going to be a huge success. I'm, uh, I'm glad you're doing it. People love to hear about it, and the songwriters uh, love, love drawing more attention to uh, what they do for a living. It is a lot of fun. And draw attention to what they do for a living is exactly what we hope to continue doing on Write You a Song in the months to come. Write You a Song is the property of KNCI Radio Sacramento and Bonneville Communications. Thank you again to our guest, Brett Warren of the Warren Brothers. We'll catch you next time on Write You a Song. Thank you for listening.